This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we are going to be talking about the documentary film that has been in the news literally since the moment it came out. And we're obviously talking about leaving Neverland. So this thing came out as of the recording of this podcast. It came out, you know, a week and a half ago, but it's still in the headlines. Every day you go to Google News or any type of a news source, you still see some sort of an update on this. So if you haven't heard of it, This was the explosive four-hour-long HBO documentary that details specific sexual assault and pedophilia allegations against the deceased pop star Michael Jackson, okay? So these allegations specifically came from Wade Robson and James Safechuck. So both of these guys are kind of the center points, the centerpieces of this four-hour-long documentary. And if the name Wade Robson sounds familiar, this guy uh, really rose to fame. I guess this would have been, what, early 2000s or something when NSYNC and Britney Spears were really kind of hitting stride. Uh, He was the guy, I guess, did all their choreography and stuff like that. So if you watched MTV around that time, you would really make sure, you would probably remember this guy. So I remember watching the documentary and be like, who is this guy? And then finally it hit me. But basically in this documentary, there was the claim that uh, these two boys, Wade and James, that they were sexually assaulted by Jackson at his home, Neverland Ranch, in addition to several other places, including when the boys uh, would be on tour with Jackson. And so uh, the age ranges of when the abuse happened was kind of the same for both boys. It was like, you know, six, seven, eight years old through, you know, 13, 14 years old, that type of a thing. Um, and here's the thing. The the families of the boys were also a part of this documentary. So um, if it was just focusing on the boys, which it was mainly focused on them, that would be one thing, but they did a lot of diving into the parents and, you know, the siblings as well, but mainly the mothers of these two boys. But the thing about these families is, especially the parents, is the families were essentially groomed by Michael Jackson. So the families were uh, apparently taken on these lavish trips, given money, houses, Uh, really it was, you know, the good life. One of the mothers talked about, you know, it really was like we were living the good life, right? So he's kind of romancing the entire family. And the thing about Michael Jackson is, as you can remember, even, you know, while the allegations were swirling, Michael Jackson was constantly seen traveling and interacting with young boys. I mean, there's just video and, and audio and pictures of him interacting with these young boys all the time. And I mean, as a little kid, whenever Michael Jackson was really, really famous, I was a little, little kid. And, you know, I, I didn't think anything of it because there was nothing to think of it. Right. But many people that have defended Michael Jackson over the years in some of his sexual assault allegations, many of them said that, he, you know, Michael Jackson, he's just a kid at heart. You know, he just, he never really had a childhood and, you know, so maybe he's kind of living out his boyhood fantasies now as an adult, you know, he's, he basically lives at a theme park and he's got all these different rides and, you know, zoo animals and all these different things, but that there's really no issues, right? That, you know, it might be weird if a guy down the street from you and your neighborhood was doing some of the things that he was doing, but not Michael Jackson. I mean, this is Michael Jackson we're talking about, right? So those were some of the things that people would give you in terms of their excuses whenever people would start to question why he was hanging around these young boys. But really, a lot of this came to head in 1993, whenever Michael Jackson was investigated for sexually assault, assaulting a boy named Jordan Chandler. Um, and the boy was 13 years old at the time of the alleged assaults and those allegations. And the thing about this is this was the most explosive story, right, in the early 90s. And so, again, I was a little too young to really understand the news cycles and things like that. But it was it was international news. But it kind of went away quietly. And the reason it went away quietly is because it was settled out of court for $15 million. 
that's in 1993. That's not that long ago, but still, that I mean, that's huge, huge money, right? Even for today. Um, now, the defenders of Michael Jackson around this time, you know, they basically said that this was a money grab by the Chandler family, and that most people, basically universally, they believed Jackson's story. And we'll, we'll get more into that a little bit as to you know why maybe they they wanted to believe that. But about a decade later. Uh, there was a documentary released in 2003 called Living with Michael Jackson. And so it kind of brought these allegations and things back to light. Basically, this documentary in the early 2000s, it, it detailed Jackson, you know, sharing a bed with young boys, amongst other things. And so some of these things, whenever you're seeing a guy, you know, walking around with these young boys and, you know, holding hands with them or, you know, taking pictures with them, it's like, okay, you can kind of suspend belief. But when you start hearing about a grown man, you know, literally sleeping in bed with young boys, like boys are seven, eight, nine years old, right? That started to basically bring these things up again. So because of that documentary, uh, Michael Jackson was actually charged with child molestation, serving alcohol to a minor conspiracy and kidnapping. Okay. So these are huge charges. Again, international news all over again, because the only thing that had happened from 1993 to 2003 is that Michael Jackson had become an even bigger star. Right. He was he was the biggest star maybe ever to live other than maybe Elvis uh, or the members of the Beatles before the before 1993. But by the time of 2003, he's kind of in in an era of his own. Right. Like he's kind of ascended to a place that no one really has ever ascended to and maybe won't ever again. Uh, The trial actually began in 2005. And without getting too much into the details of the trial, because I'm sure you don't really give uh, that to give a crap about that. And also it's kind of old news. He was found not guilty on all charges. But you kind of had the famous video of him uh, at Neverland Ranch wearing his red shirt, his face, you know, being all weird from from all the different surgeries he had gotten, basically saying how he would never hurt a child. And, you know, these allegations are, are bad. And, you know, I can't believe anybody would think I would do this. And, you know, it's so embarrassing for me. The, the police came in and took pictures of my penis and my buttocks and my lower torso and all these other things. And you just remember all these things happening. And you also remember kind of feeling bad for the guy. Because, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, there's not really much worse a treatment that you could get in life than to be non-credibly accused of sexually assaulting a minor, right? Like, that's one of the craziest things that could possibly, possibly happen. But this is something that's just part of the Michael Jackson story. Now, um, going back to the documentary a little bit, the two main subjects of Leaving Neverland, they basically detail the abuse that they suffered. And it sounded a lot like the other alleged abuses by other boys, right? So we see a lot of the same things from the 1993 case, the same thing from the 2003 case and other ancillary things that have come up here and there. And guys, this is going to be graphic, the description I'm about to give. So if you are listening to this with your children or something like that, perhaps you can pause this or you can skip over it or something like that. Because the thing about it is, you know, we don't sanitize anything here on this podcast and we're certainly not going to do so with this. So what these two guys uh, said that Michael Jackson would do, it was kind of the same progression. So it would basically start with them, uh, you know, hanging out a lot together. It would start with them sleeping in the same same room, right? So, you know, when you think of room, you're thinking probably the room that you're in right now. But when Michael Jackson had a room, it was like, you know, his one room might have multiple stories to it, right? So he might be in his room, but you know, there's a bed downstairs and there's a bed upstairs, that type of a thing. But then it would eventually get to the point where uh, he and the boy would be sleeping in the same bed, right? Then Michael Jackson would apparently uh, start to fondle the boy's genitals over their clothes, right? And then that would go into fondling their genitals under their clothes, showing the boys how to masturbate, showing them how to masturbate each other, basically jerk each other off. Um, Jackson would eventually suck the boys' penises, 
And then, as you could probably imagine, he would eventually convince the boys and show them how they could suck his penis. Um, he would make them watch hardcore pornography at different points. He would serve them alcohol, right. To, I guess, you know, get the inhibitions of a seven year old boy to be a little bit more, uh, acquiescent. Um, he would also make the boys sit naked on the end of the bed and they would be on all fours, basically exposing their anuses. And so he would basically be staring at their anuses while they would master, while he would masturbate. Um, and at different points he would come up and lick the boys anuses. And all of this kind of led to what he would eventually try to do, which was eventually anally penetrate the boys with his penis. Right. I, I know that that's really, really uncomfortable to kind of go through, but that's essentially the behavior that Michael Jackson was exhibiting here. These are some of the things that he did, because I, I think we're kind of past the point now of calling these things alleged crimes. Right. I mean, the evidence is just pretty damning at this point. I really just don't think we can get away with calling these things alleged crimes anymore. And that's something that this guy was doing. This was a normal behavior for him. And he did this literally every day, because one of the things you get from this documentary is he had a constant, you know, basically wheel of boys in his life. And when boys would kind of age out. If, as it were, I guess they were no longer very attractive to Michael Jackson. He would kind of have a new boy come in, right? And, and he would kind of take him through the same thing, kind of woo the family and go from there. But uh, the, the behavior uh, that was being exhibited here by Jackson was that of someone that knew what he was doing was wrong, um, but had this compulsion that he couldn't stop, but also wanted to take precautions to ensure that he wouldn't get caught. The documentary does a great job of go- going into some of these precautions and some of the practical precautions he had were, uh, you know, he would have rooms. So initially, you know, if you were in a hotel, like if the family was traveling with Michael Jackson on tour or something like that, you know, they would have hotel rooms be right next to one another. But then on subsequent trips, the parents' rooms would become further and further away from Michael's rooms right? Just slowly, but surely, right? Uh, in his residences, he had multiple locks on the doors, right? So if you could kind of hear somebody jostling with the locks, if you were going to be uh, doing something, um, he also had a hallway that led to his room and it had, um, he rigged it up to where there were like sensors and bells. So if anybody was coming down the hallway, it would alert him in his room. So if obviously he was raping a kid at that point, he could, you know, have him take care of it. Um, but also one of the things he did with the boys and, and one of the boys, um, actually detailed this in the, in the documentary, he basically said he would do dry runs with Michael Jackson, where basically they would, you know, take all their clothes off real quick. And then they would see how, how quickly and quietly they could put all their clothes back on. And so Michael kind of treated it like it was a game. Right. But, but obviously Michael Jackson was being practical in that if they heard or saw someone coming, right, someone might reasonably get into the room before they were able to put all their clothes back on. And then the, you know, the jig was up at that point. Right. So at, at that point he was basically grooming these kids to, you know, basically in a practice practical way, get all their clothes back on and pretend like nothing was ever happening. But in addition to, to basically some of the practical preparation Michael Jackson was doing, he was also doing psychological preparation. So he was convincing the boys that they were in a loving relationship. So that was some of the psychological parts that he was doing is he would always talk about them in these glowing terms. And again, you got to remember these little boys were fans of his. Right. I mean, they, they literally worshiped the ground that this guy moonwalked on. But at the same time, like he was doing these things to them, but they're little, so they can't really reconcile the two. Right. Um, he also started basically planting these seeds of discontent in the minds of the kids when it came to their parents. 
So he was kind of helping drive a wedge between the boys and their parents and specifically the moms because the moms were the ones that were around more often in both of these cases. And so just basically these little comments basically saying you can't trust anybody, especially women. Um, You know, he would say things like no one on the outside would understand us, you know, talking to the kids, right? No one's going to understand us. So we need to keep this a secret because if we let this secret out, people just aren't going to get it, right? They don't get it like you get it and like I get it. Um, And, you know, if something happens to us, you know, we're going to get in a lot of hot water, right? If these things come out and they, he just kept reminding them that, Hey, if you tell anybody, then I go to jail for the rest of my life and you'll go to jail for the rest of your life. Right? So, so you're, you're putting two types of psychological dangers in the mind of the kid. One that their idol is going to go to jail forever, which is a terrible thing to think about. But then also they themselves would be going to jail. So the, the thing about this is the documentary came out, um, in terms of a documentary, it's well done and uh, no one can really go against, you know, how it was made or something like that. But this has not stopped Jackson's fans from coming out of the woodwork to defend their dead favorite pop icon. Right now, the thing about his fans that have come out after this, basically, you know, shouting down and flaming this documentary is that none of them of course, have have any firsthand knowledge of the incidents, right? None of them are even ancillarily connected to anybody that's in the Jackson camp or Jackson family or any of those things. But they just like his music, right? And and we'll get more into that in, in here just a second because that is really, really pertinent to what we're going to be talking about. But they're basically outraged that these allegations came up after Jackson had died, right? As if the first time anyone had ever made these allegations, it was after the man had been dead. I think he's been dead for almost 10 years, right? And so they're just outraged that these allegations would come out against a man who's not there to defend himself as if, you know, that's kind of the main issue, right? Uh, And both accusers in the documentary had previously testified on Jackson's behalf during his court cases, right? And so here's the thing where I kind of like, you know, I can kind of see their perspective is both of these men, that have since come out and said that Michael Jackson did all these terrible things to them, came to his defense in a court of law with, with threat of perjury hanging over their heads, right? And at those times, they basically said, no, Michael Jackson never did anything like this to us, only to, to later come out and change their stories. So some say that these two accusers are just after money now because we, we don't know a whole lot about these guys and, and kind of what they're worth, but we can assume they're not worth nearly as much as Michael Jackson is. So they're trying to get some of that MJ money. Right. Um, but the thing about it is, and, and I think it's fair to say in this documentary, whenever you look at the documentary, you can see that these boys were under a complete amount of mind control. And, and it was coming from Jackson that even years after, even as they were adults, they were still kind of under his spell to a certain degree. Right. And so were the, so were the families, right. That Michael couldn't possibly have done this. And, you know, it's just, they were still so enamored with the guy. So in love with him, like really in in real terms, a, a familial type of love, but all, also a romantic type of love. They were in love with this guy and they were willing to do anything to protect him. Michael Jackson had done such a fantastically uh, astute job of making sure that these boys w- would never be able to come out against him. And in, in large part, they didn't, Right. There were two boys that were able to come out and and make credible allegations, but, you know, Jackson never really served any time for it. He died at the age of 50 uh, and, you know, he spent basically no time behind bars. Um, But these boys, it wasn't that they suppressed the memories. I know that's a psychological phenomenon that you can actually suppress incredibly hurtful memories from your past because your brain doesn't really know or your subconscious doesn't really know how to deal with those things. But at the same time, 
This was not something that these boys conjured up later. I I just didn't get that sense whatsoever in watching the documentary that these boys were were doing something that in cahoots with one another. Oh, we're going to get paid by this documentary and then we're going to sue the Jackson family, make all this money and all that. I literally just think it was one of those times. and, And one of the accusers actually said this, Wade, he was like, look, I was at a point where I could not, I was not in a mature enough place to where I could deal with these emotions. Right. Because whenever Wade came forth um, and actually testified at Michael Jackson's trial, I think he was like 20, maybe 21 years old at the time. And, and need I remind you guys what you were like at the age of 20 or 21? Maybe you were emotionally stunted. Maybe you were immature. Maybe you had some really, really stupid opinions. I mean, I talk about that all the time. Your brain's not fully developed until you're 25. So all these massive amounts of emotions and decisions that you have to make. You don't always make them great. And if other people are viewing it or if you even you're looking back and trying to have, you know, uh, 2020 vision on the subject, it's not really going to work out for you. So the whole time I'm watching this documentary, I just didn't get the sense that these guys weren't being truthful, especially in the face of all the allegations that we had seen before. Now, as you can imagine, Michael Jackson's estate, uh, they're obviously very, very concerned about Jackson's legacy. Believe it or not, the, the Jackson estate has made billions, billions with a B dollars since the man has died. Like, so, so they've got a lot to protect here. So ergo, I mean, basically his fortune's on the line. Um, the Jackson estate has actually filed a $100 million lawsuit against HBO. Which, I mean, if you're HBO, you, you knew this was coming, right? HBO's got lawyers too, and you know they had to know that this was going to be coming down the pike. Um, now, apparently they can't file the Jackson camp. They can't file a defamation suit against Michael Jackson because he's dead. But what they're doing, this is really, really strange, but they're claiming that this documentary, Leaving Neverland, actually disparages Jackson's public image, which, uh, duh, it clearly does. But apparently back in 1992, HBO, in part of the contract to get the rights to show one of Jackson's live concert performances on their channel, they had to basically sign something saying that they would never disparage Jackson's public image in any way. And so they're basically filing a $100 million lawsuit to say that that's exactly what HBO did with this documentary. So no idea how that's going to work out. Honestly, I don't give a crap. Um, now, the thing that we've seen, though, is that other people have acted and, and reacted to this documentary in a more appropriate fashion. So there are radio stations all over the world that have stopped playing Jackson's music. Uh, the Simpsons cartoon, I mean, they pulled a Michael Jackson themed episode from circulation. Um, there was actually, I guess, a, a statue of Michael Jackson at the National uh, Football Museum, not, uh, basically the National Soccer Museum uh, over in Manchester, England, which why was that up there anyway to begin with? Um, you've even seen guys like Drake. Uh, he had some different performances that were centered around Michael Jackson and, you know, sampling some of his songs. He's pulled those from his concert. The Lakers, you know, had something to do with their in-stadium entertainment that had his music on it. So they pulled that, you know, there, there's people that are Michael Jackson impersonators and performers. And, you know, for the time being, they're, they're pausing their performances and blah, 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 and all this different stuff. You know, it is what it is. So those are those people that are kind of reacting on that side. So to kind of wrap up the synopsis just about the documentary itself, the documentary is really, really well done, guys. So um, in my opinion, I think it's worth the watch, but it is four hours long. So really, the only reason that I watched it is because I really wanted to talk to you guys about it. It was still really pertinent. So that's why I took four hours out of my schedule that I didn't really have to to watch this this crazy documentary. But as with anything that we're going to bring up here on this podcast, there are some important things that we need to think about 
as thinking Christians, but specifically as Christian men, that this documentary really helped kind of suss out. And so you may have heard some of these questions basically put out in the public sphere, and you're hearing a lot of different opinions on it right now, but I'll kind of give you mine on it. So uh, the three questions, uh, I'll just go with the first one here. So the first one is, does celebrity or fame blind us? And I think the answer is very, very clearly yes, right? Because here's the thing, quick bit of advice to the parents out there, keep your head on a swivel, please. I mean, go back to episode 37 and 63 of this podcast, where we talked about the devil in the Catholic church and the Southern Baptist convention, right? A lot of this abuse is happening right under our noses, right? We notice things, we see things that we don't like in certain people, but ah, you know, we just kind of like, you know, play it off as if it's nothing. And guys, again, this isn't just happening in the Catholic church. It's not just happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's happening at public schools. It's happening at private schools. It's happening in Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. It's happening in sports teams. It's happening with family members at reunions. It's happening all the time. So the thing about this documentary that has been universally the same is the reaction to the parents. I mean, these parents seem like adults. It's like, are you kidding me? As adults with children, seven, eight, nine-year-old boys, at what point did you get the idea that leaving your little boy with a grown man and allowing him to sleep in the same room with that man to just say that that's okay? Because that's the thing. These parents were not out of the loop. It's not like they they didn't know that was happening. They, They basically signed off on it. I mean, there was one parent, I forget, I forget uh, which, which uh, mom it was, but at one point, Michael Jackson was asking this mom if he could have the boy for a year, right? Basically, because again, he was going to help him with his dancing and help him get commercials and things like that. And, you know, again, kind of romancing and wooing the entire family. But like, that was the straw for this mom. How dare you ask me to keep my son for a year? That is my son. We're going back to our town. You're not coming with us, blah, 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 that kind of thing. That was the final straw. But hey, uh, you guys go on your family vacation to the Grand Canyon and leave your seven-year-old son here at Neverland Ranch with me. No big deal. Okay. All right, son. We'll see you in a week. And this was not in the days of cell phones where you could just get a quick text or a quick update. You basically didn't see that boy for a week. No big deal. So the thing about this question, does celebrity and fame blind us? It Of, of course it does. Because you want to believe that these people are good people. You just want to. And it blinds us to, to make really, really bad decisions that have had really, really dire consequences. And the second question that this, uh, this documentary begs is, are we consistent in how we view situations like this? Are we consistent in how we view them? Um, because of the way that you need to look about this, and there's a lot of different examples out there is it's when we like someone or something versus not liking certain other somethings or people, right? So I, the first example, I guess that came to mind for me is, you know, Mark McGuire, so growing up, uh, being a St. Louis Cardinals fan, being called Lil Mac, having red hair, you know, Big Mac having having red hair and doing all those different things. Um, you know, I, I defended him for so long on these these steroid allegations because I was like, look, we've seen no evidence. There's nothing to suggest that this guy would have done these things. But, you know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and, and Sammy Sosa and Andy Pettit and Rafael Palmero and Jose Canseco, those guys clearly did it. 
And so it wasn't until Mark McGuire came out and said, yeah, I actually did do those things. When Tony Russo had you know hired him to be the hitting coach, I guess one of the caveats was, hey, Mark, you're going to have to come clean with this because we don't want this following our team around for the next 162 games, right? But I defended him the whole way, but I didn't defend those other guys because I didn't like those other guys. They didn't play for my team, right? But but now I, I consider Mark McGuire to be just the same as the rest of those guys, if not worse. I mean, I feel like, you know, he didn't have the storied career that Barry Bonds did, but his 70 home runs, basically saving baseball in 1998, along with another juicer, Sammy Sosa. I mean, that's a, that's a problem for me. And here, the problem has gotten so, so bad now for me when it comes to cheating. I just, I don't have any sympathy for these guys, but St. Louis Cardinals fans voted Mark McGuire into the St. Louis Cardinals hall of fame. And I was sick to my stomach at that. Same thing whenever you see Barry Bonds come out at 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 AT&T Park or whatever it's called now on San Francisco and getting a standing ovation. You know, when these dopes in Milwaukee, you know, were cheering for Ryan Braun, who basically tried to ruin a guy's career by lying about the testing, calling the guy basically an anti-Semite because, you know, Ryan Braun's Jewish. Like, I just couldn't stand any of that. But then the thing is, is again, I'm trying to think about how we can be consistent. So I have all this, this crazy anger towards a guy like, you know, Barry Bonds, who's kind of like the poster boy for cheating. But at the same time, I love Chael Sonnen. So for those of you who don't know who Chael Sonnen is, he's an MMA fighter. He fought in the UFC. Now he's fighting in Bellator. He's gotten a lot of title shots. He's lost them all, but he's had a lot of title shots, you know, considered to be the greatest trash talker in the history of MMA. Yes, even over Conor McGregor, who we'll, you know, talk about here in just a second. But basically, Chael Sonnen, he was, he was basically one-eighth Tropicana at some point. He was on so much juice. It was ridiculous. And he kind of details the parts. I mean, even after he almost beat Anderson Silva, you know, he got triangled at the very, very end of the fifth round. Even if he had won that fight, taken the belt, he would have had to concede the belt back to Anderson or just, you know, back to the ether because he had popped. Chael Sonnen cheated for the overwhelming majority of his career. He's still fighting in Bellator, but he's fighting at a higher weight class. There's no real signs that he's continued to cheat. But this guy knows everything there is to know about cheating. And he admits that now. But every time Chael Sonnen fights... I'm rooting for him. You know, it's just like, I'm really inconsistent there. And and here's to point out even more of my inconsistency. I cannot stand Floyd Mayweather. And the specific reason that I can't stand Floyd Mayweather is because he hits women. He beats women. And yes, he's gone to, gone to prison. He's done his time, but he's not really repentant. He's not really living a life of somebody that is repented of that. Right. And so I'm very big on the fact that, like, I don't want to watch Floyd Mayweather fight. I don't want to pay for his fights. I don't want to go to a bar where his fights are playing, where I'm actually buying food that's going to support him. But at different points of my life, I've been shooting, uh, you know, cheering for Anthony Rumble Johnson, UFC fighter. That's been brought up multiple times on, on domestic abuse charges. Now, again, he was he was not convicted of those charges, but he was con- he was the evidence was not really in his favor. So I, I root for Rumble Johnson, but I can't root for Floyd Mayweather. Here's another one. Chris Brown. I really, really like Chris Brown's music, right? So judge me, judge me harshly. But for whatever reason, his songs and whoever's doing most of his production, it just fits. I just love it. This guy beat up Rihanna. He hit women too. But I still listen to his music and enjoy it. He's kind of been a jerk even since then. He's kind of been getting in and out of trouble, basically being rambunctious. And guys, literally, less than an hour ago, before I hit play on this on this you know recording, Conor McGregor, my favorite fighter probably of all time, uh, one of the greatest fighters of all time, and clearly the biggest star in the history of mixed martial arts and like top five biggest star in the history of combat sports, he just got arrested today. 
Apparently, a fan was getting his face down in Miami, so he took the fan's phone and broke it and then took the phone and all that, so he was arrested for, uh, you know, basically stealing the dude's phone and breaking it. And that's my dude. The next time he fights, I guarantee you I'm going to be rooting for him. There's not anyone that you could put him in the octagon against that I'm going to root for the other guy. There's not a guy out there. So consistency there is not there, or with, with that situation is not there. Also, for those of you guys, I know I'm going into a lot of different subject matters, but I just want to kind of show you, uh, what about uh, the band As I Lay Dying? So a lot of you guys know the band As I Lay Dying, and if you know the band, you obviously know the story. The lead singer of that, of that band several years ago was caught trying to pay a hitman to kill his wife, right? Just crazy situation. The guy at the gym that you know he thought was you know a hitman was actually an undercover cop. Which, thank God that he was talking to an undercover cop and not an actual hitman. Because if he was talking to an actual hitman, his wife's probably dead today. But the thing was, is he was caught. He went to jail. He served several years in prison. But now he's out. And wouldn't you know it, Azalee Dying's back together. So I'm kind of in this quandary right now to where it's like, well, if they do a show in Oklahoma City, do I go to it? I mean, should I follow them on Instagram? Because the thing is, is, the other four bandmates, it wasn't their fault what the lead singer Tim Lambesis did. It wasn't their fault. but. Again, I have to think about the fact that this guy who has gone to jail, but this guy thought he was paying a guy 1200 bucks to murder his wife. And what if he, what if it worked? Like that's real inconsistent of me, but here's another one for you guys to think of before I belabor this point too far. What about pastors? So we've got pastors out there that, you know, they've, uh, maybe cheated on their wives or they've abused patrons or they've abused uh you know boys or something like that like think about those people you everyone's kind of got their favorite pastor people that they they don't really want uh, a lot of their things to kind of go out the window and and that kind of leads us into this third question that i want to set up for you guys so again the the three questions it begs is one does celebrity slash slash fame blind us the second is are we consistent in how we view situations and the third is kind of a two-part question but the first part here is kind of the micro side which is can we separate the art from the artist And this is that question that is on everybody's mind. This is what blogs are being written about. They're doing, uh, you know, uh, sessions on shows and they're, they're doing podcast episodes on this exact subject and Michael Jackson being the center of it now is, can we separate the art from the artist? And this is, this is that big question. But in my opinion, guys, I say, yes, we can do that. Right. So specifically talking about Michael Jackson, I remember loving Michael Jackson when I was a little kid, right? I can't even remember which music was out at that time. You know, it all kinds of run, kind of runs together. But I do remember um, us kind of gathering around the television and there was this Michael Jackson special that was showing on one of the big three channels or something like that. But in this specific dance thing, you know, I think he was dancing on top of a car and he like punched the car windows out, but he apparently grabbed his crotch like a hundred times or something like that during this short little performance on television. And from that point forward, my parents were like, nope, we're not doing Michael Jackson anymore. You can't listen to his music. You can't watch any of his videos. No more Michael Jackson. Again, I'm a little kid. What does it matter? My, my parents can take away whatever they want because I'm living in their house. Um, but you know, fast forward to being a senior in high school, I danced to Michael Jackson in front of the entire school. Me and a group of guys, we, we danced to uh, uh, Beat It. Yeah, we danced to Beat It. And I did the same thing as a freshman in college. The same song, the same routine, different crew of people. You know, I, I, I used his music to basically entertain my friends and entertain you know a bunch of strangers. I, you know, jammed out to his music at a lot of different points. Really, really have enjoyed it. But the thing about it is we've got to be able to separate the art from the artist. 
And the big reason is, is because we don't know these people. So the example I want to point out for you is how many people are you currently fans of? So, so let's think of artists. Let's think of singers. Let's think of rappers. Let's think of dancers. Let's think of actors and actresses. Let's think of pastors. As we brought up earlier, let's think of athletes. Let's think of politicians, people that you just like. Guys, you have no idea what level of depravity exists inside that person, but we can assume that it's, there's not like zero depravity. Everyone's got their skeletons in the closet and things like that. Right. You know, some guys just mean, you know, maybe they work too much or they're a workaholic or maybe some guys drink a little bit too much and some people rape boys. But the thing is, is we don't know these people. Just think about it. What if no one ever came forward against Michael Jackson, right? So we don't have the case in 1993. We don't have the case in 2003. We don't have that first documentary and we don't have this HBO documentary. It doesn't erase the things that he did, but billions of people around the world just wouldn't have known about it. And I can guarantee you there are guys in your life and my life right now, things that you're fans of, you know, uh, directors that have certain movies that you just love every single thing that they put out there that are horrible, horrific people that have done unbelievable, unspeakable things, right? We don't know these people. So we have to suspend the art from the artists because almost all of us don't know any of those artists. So I know some people are making a lot of different declarations on both sides of the issue, uh, but no, I, I don't think that's a problem. I think we can absolutely separate these two things. But the second part of this, and this is kind of like part three or, you know, part two of the third question, this is more the macro idea is, is it possible to sanitize history completely? So again, the micro side is, can we separate the art from the artist? The macro side is, is it possible to sanitize history completely? And obviously the answer is no, we can't. So look at the movement right now. You see a lot of people on the political left that are wanting to whitewash history, right? So we've got to remove Confederate statues. We have to remove all mention of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or any of those guys because they own slaves, right? So since those guys own slaves, we need to take their names off of, off of streets. We need to take them off of universities. We need to take all their statues down. But here's the thing is if you use that philosophy, you have to take all the people into account with that philosophy, right? So what do we do with Martin Luther King Jr.? Because if you guys didn't know, that guy was a horrific husband. Not only did he beat his wife, he cheated on her innumerable times. That was just something that Martin Luther King Jr. did. And as a pastor, he didn't even believe in the Trinity. So what do we do with Martin Luther King Jr.? Do we just get rid of the I have a dream speech? Do we just get rid of the letter from Birmingham jail? Do we get rid of all the amazing things he did for all people, including people of color in this country? Can we do that? What about Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, that guy, you know, Mr. You know, pacifist, not going to hurt a fly. He beat his entire family mercilessly. What do we do with Gandhi? Do we just get rid of all the the great things that he contributed to humanity? Do, Do we get rid of his celebrity? Do we get rid of the hystericity around the things that he did and accomplished? So again, this is why we can separate the art from the artist because we can't know these people and we can't sanitize history. We can't make the sin go away. I mean, look at Bill Cosby. Are you telling me that if somebody put on one of those old Bill Cosby comedy records that you wouldn't sit there and laugh? The stuff's funny. He was a horrifically evil man or he, I, he's still alive. He is a horrifically evil man that did crazy evil things. 
but his art that he contributed is still okay, right? Now we look at it differently, and and to a to a large degree, I agree with that. But it's going to be impossible for us if we got rid of every single piece of art or entertainment that came from somebody that was depraved. We would have no art or entertainment left. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the uh, glory of God. There's a lot of people that have done things that are way far beyond anything that you've ever imagined. But again, we, we can't just whitewash it. So guys, in totality, there's no biblical issue here. There, there's certainly no salvific issue here as you're kind of thinking, you know, what do I do with Michael Jackson? What do I do with Bill Cosby? What do I do with all these people? There, there's none of that here. The thing I would caution you guys, if we're being honest and we're breaking it to a, you know down to a very specific level, is you know where you put your dollars. Because you know this, you've heard every pastor on the planet say something along the lines of where you put your dollars, that's also where your heart is, right? Where you put your attention is where your heart is. And so I kind of have issues and going back to the Azalea dying example, I'll probably never see that band in concert because that's a direct way of contributing to their, uh, to, to them as a band. And I just don't feel good about that supporting, uh, that lead singer who's sort of repentant, but you can't really know if he's actually repented. So that would be the thing I would caution you guys. So uh, again, the documentary was very well done. I think it's worth your time to take a look, but there's a lot of things that we can glean from it that as thinking Christians, we should be able to apply in our everyday lives. All right, guys, I'm going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. And so I don't have an exact link for you guys to check out today in terms of what type of resilience boost that we're going to do. I am just going to encourage you to go to HBO. So for those of you that have HBO, I'm sure it's just going to be playing on loop on their different stations. If you have uh, just a subscription of any time of any kind, you can go to HBO Go and check that out. So I just want to leave some capacity here if you guys actually did want to go in and take down that documentary. All right, guys, thanks as always for listening to the podcast. If you would, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and make sure to share this on social media. If you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, we'll be sure to find the post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one here. That's how this podcast is going to continue to grow is if you guys let us know you like the content and leave us a few sentences letting us know why. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019, so if you want me to be a guest on your podcast, if you want me to come speak at your men's event, talk to to your team, talk to your business, just hit me up. My email is info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The link's to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>